Well, about uh, 10 years ago, uh, I had the privilege of discipling um, a man by the name of James. He was a weapons instructor with the Air Force, which meant that his office was at Camp Bullis, and he taught new soldiers how to you know, operate 50 caliber weapons and all these things and stuff way over my head. I can barely shoot a Nerf gun, but I had the, the privilege to disciple him. And uh, he told me this story one time where there... Um, you know, where they would shoot weapons out is at Camp Bullis. And I don't know if you've ever flown into San Antonio, but one of the main flight paths into San Antonio is over uh, La Cantera and the Rim and Camp Bullis and up there. So he told me that there's a guy whose sole job is to stand out at the field with binoculars. And when he sees an incoming um, plane, he yells on the system, cease fire. And it doesn't matter who you are, what rank you are, what you're doing, how much is left in your magazine or whatever, you obey the command, you put your weapon down, you let the plane pass by, and when um, it's safe, you resume your, your, um, your shooting. And he was explaining to me just the command, cease fire, literally saves thousands of lives every day because there's lots of rocks in San Antonio soil, and uh, there's the chance that a, a, a bullet could, you know, land on the ground, hit the rock, ricochet up, and it would not be with, out of the realm of possibility that a bullet could fly and hit a fuselage, and it would be, you know, obviously bad news. So they have this guy, I'm like, surely it's more, you know, sophisticated than a guy with binoculars and a megaphone. But that's what he told me, you know. So I had no reason to believe he's lying to me. And uh, I was thinking about how that is kind of the spirit of the Sabbath, this command to cease firing, to cease leaning forward and you know, taking action. And, and when we obey this command of ceasing, it, it brings life to us and it saves our lives, saves many of the lives. And I thought it was a good story about the Sabbath. We're at the point uh, in our series, we've got one more week left, where we're talking about um, Sabbath rest and the spiritual ancient discipline of Sabbath keeping, the fourth commandment in the Ten Commandments. Remember the Sabbath and keep it holy. We're at the point where we have to talk about, well, how do you do it? Because um, it is um, a verb. It is something you do. And um, James, the, the bunk brother of Jesus, in chapter 1, verse 22, he said to be doers of the word, not hearers only, uh, lest you deceive your own self. So it, it is uh, in the spirit of the New Testament and, and of wisdom to figure out, as Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount, how do you put these? How do you take these words that you hear and put them into practice and become like the wise person who built their house on the rock? So that's kind of what we want to do today. Um, inevitably, uh, the question always comes: Well, how do you Sabbath? That's a question I ask. I'm sure at some point, as we've talked about Sabbath, you've been thinking: Well, how do I do this? So I want to uh, step into. Uh, the waters of nuance for a second, and follow me here. Um, on one hand, that question is really good, because if you're legitimately asking the question, how do I do this thing, then you un- you're probably understanding it's actually in your benefit to honor the fourth commandment and to do it. You understand that uh, in, in Genesis 2, verse 2, the Hebrew uh, word, um, Shavath, I think it is, when it says that God rested, that it's actually a verb. It is something that God did. So it's something that you do. You understand that. Um, so on one hand, it's a great question. The other hand, it's a terrible question. And this is where the nuance comes in. 
is because very quickly, if you're not careful, you can fall into the, the muddy waters of achieving Sabbath, performing Sabbath, accomplishing Sabbath. And if you have perfectionistic tendencies like me, you can fall under the religious tyranny of, am I doing it right? And so just, here's a thing. If you're asking yourself the question, am I doing Sabbath right? It should be a red flag that, yeah, you're starting to get off the path of this, right? So it's not about doing it right. It is not about keeping the Sabbath right. It's really about, here's the nuance, allowing the Sabbath to keep you. And there are helpful things you can do that can help the Sabbath keep you. There are unhelpful things you can do that kind of keep the Sabbath from keeping you. But I hope you get the, the gist of this, is that, yes, it's a good question to ask how. It's also a very dangerous question because you're, you can go really south with it. So we're going to try to answer um, the question of how to do it. And I, but I'd like for us to all remember that the Sabbath existed before the law. And it is a rhythm in creation, more so than a law to keep. Okay? Sabbath is a rhythm um, and less of a rule. So let's go to Psalms 46 page uh, 472, if you're using the Bible around you. This is a well-known psalm. Um, at some point, we will come across a verse, and you'll say, I've seen that on a pallet on Pinterest. I really like this psalm. It's, there's so many that are great. This is one of my favorites. I got like 20 favorites, but this is one of them. Psalms 46. We'll read the whole thing. I'm just going to harp on one verse. Um, but Psalm 46, you there? You ready? Use your phone or your, th- or your Bible. It's good. God is our refuge and strength, a very present help in trouble. I think the NIV says a very present help in time of need. Now, if you're ever in trouble or you're ever in time of need, that's a great verse to lean on, that God is our refuge, he's our strength, and he is Emmanuel, he is God with us, he is not just present, he's very present. I love that. Therefore, we will not fear, though the earth gives way, though the mountains be moved into the heart of the sea, though its waters roar and foam, though the mountains tremble at its swelling. There is a river whose streams make glad the city of God. The holy habitation of the Most High. God is in the midst of her. She shall not be moved. God will help her when morning dawns. The nations rage, the kingdoms totter. He utters his voice, the earth melts. What a picture. The Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our fortress. Come, behold the works of the Lord, how he has brought desolations on the earth. He makes wars cease to the end of the earth. He breaks the bow and shatters the spear. He burns the chariots with fire. In other words, uh, he undoes all of our violence that we cause. Here's the Pinterest verse. Be still and know 
that I am God. I will be exalted among the nations. I will be exalted in the earth. The Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our fortress. Isn't that good? I want to throw up on the screen uh, 46 verse 10. Be still. The, uh, the Hebrew for be still is rafa. It means to relax, to withdraw, to let go, to be quiet, to show yourself slack. I like that one. My favorite definition is it just means to cease striving, cease fire. Rafa, be still, means to cease striving. Whenever um, about, I think, man, 14 years ago, I was in a, a worship band, and it was at a, as a really big uh, Southern Baptist church that was on like satellite, and um, they had a contemporary service, and it, you know, all the band members were like, um, I don't know, we were late 20s. This church was massive. I think we had 1,500 people at our service, and uh, we, we had this, uh, I tell the story all the time, but we had this woman who, her name is Marianne, we called her the Oracle. She was like our spiritual mother. She was in her, um, I think, late 60s. And she was not, she was in our group, but she never played an instrument. And to the, I don't know this for certain, but to this day, I think the church assigned her to us as our chaperone. Because they're like, it's kind of dangerous that we have all these 20-year-olds leading 1,500 people in worship, and it's on satellite. So let's send Marianne to go make sure, like, you know, be Peter Pan to these little kids or whatever. So um, she was great. She, she would always uh, lead us in the time of Bible study before. And we called her the Oracle from the Matrix, because every time she opened her mouth, God spoke to us. It was, like, amazing. We, should, we, all need, we all need oracles or Yodas in our life. And so um, there's Vader's and then there's Yodas. And she was a Yoda for sure. To this day, she's a great mentor of mine. And uh, we were all just in angst over something dumb. And she read us this verse and she said, y'all, y'all need to cease striving. And they're like, yeah, yeah. She goes, no, no, no. You need, and like it took her five minutes to get us to where we just like, just stop. Just stop. Every time I read this verse, I think of her, I think of that moment, and I think of this, the, the, the gift that is in the command, the life-saving gift that is in the command that some guy with binoculars and a megaphone yells, cease your firing, cease your striving. Uh, Eugene Peterson in the message, I love his version of this, he says, step out of traffic, take a long, loving look at me, your high God, Above politics, above everything. Love that. Step out of traffic. The Sabbath is a day where we stop trafficking. We stop trading. We stop all of that. The Sabbath is a day where we take a long, slow look at the love of God. It should be a slice of heaven. It's different than just a day off. All right. So um, my preference in teaching is to take a chunk of text and then let it speak for itself, and then pull out some, hey, here's how we should apply this. And um, today, I'm not going to do that. What I'd like to do is kind of enter into less of a sermon and more of a practical workshop of um, kind of here's some best practices that um, a lot of people older and smarter than me have handed down to me and that I've used and I think are very helpful when learning how to answer the question, how do I Sabbath? So I'm going to throw out a 
ton of practical things. I want to, as a reminder, in case you're new, last week we said what Sabbath is not. Sabbath is not a day off. A day off is a catch-up day. Eugene Peterson, again, I'm quoting him, so don't get mad. He says, you know, essentially, when we treat the Sabbath as another day off apart from God, it's a bastard Sabbath. It's the, the illegitimate child of God's true intention for us. So it's not simply a day off. It's different. Sabbath's not a church service, everyone said. <laughs> okay, you'll learn that. Thank you. It's not a... You like church? Okay. Well, that's right. It's not, surf, it's not church, and it's not self-care. Um, particularly in our younger generation, there's a big trend right now, self-care. And self-care is great, but Sabbath is more than that. I'd say Sabbath is a day where the Spirit cares for us, not a day where we just um, care for ourselves. It's more than that. Sabbath is, to quote Jesus, that carpenter, Sabbath is a day for life, or it's a day for healing. Uh, Marty Solomon, this is my favorite definition. He says, we rest, we play, no work, God loves us. That's my favorite definition of Sabbath. A day where we rest, we play, we don't do any work. You, you don't have to do the dishes on the Sabbath. Did you know that? You, know, you, don't, you don't have to make your bed. You know, you don't even need to shower. Just don't come around me, but you don't need to shower, right? It's a day where you do no work because God loves you. You should shower, but you get the point. Right, please brush your teeth. It's a day for life, right? Um, I, I'm teaching my kids this definition, and I was, uh, I was talking to Hayden, and I said, hey, I want to teach you what Sabbath is. And so I, I said, hey, sit still. I'm going to tell you the most important thing I've ever told you. And he's like, and I said, listen, the Sabbath is a day where we rest, we play, and before I could get to no work, he wants to interrupt and go, I think I know. And so I say, we rest, we play, and he says, we pick our boogers. <laughs> And I was like, well, maybe just don't eat it, you know? I don't know. His mom disapproves. Like, no, like that is unrighteous behavior. You should not pick your boogers on the Sabbath, you know? But you get the point. And uh, Pete Scazzaro, a hero of mine, um, this is really helpful. He says the Sabbath is a 24-hour block of time in which we do four things. We stop work. We enjoy rest. We practice delight, which is such a gift. And most importantly, we contemplate God. Okay? So I don't want to uh, teach you a right or wrong way to Sabbath. I don't want to get into here's a bunch of rules. What I would like to do is uh, maybe offer some pillars or some ingredients or maybe some helpful guardrails that I think are universal. If you're making a cake, there's, a, there's certain things you have to have to make a cake. I think I'm not a baker, but I'm assuming like, you, know, you need eggs and flour and whatever it is. But you get that. Like, there's just ingredients, okay? So before we get in there, a uh, word of caution. Um, what works for me will not work for you, probably. Um, we are all different. We all have different giftings, personalities, capacities, uh, wounds, experiences, um, pleasures, delights. So um, it's not helpful for me to tell you, here's how I Sabbath, because I could describe my Sabbath, and you could very easily hear a prescription in there. And I don't want to prescribe how you should do it. And, and sometimes it's helpful to hear descriptions, but um, I, I want to try to not do that. Um, you will have to figure out, you have to use the brain God gave you to figure out 
um, how the Sabbath best keeps you. So the first thing I want to do is to give you permission to play with and to experiment with the Sabbath, okay? And not that I need to give you permission, but maybe you need to hear a pastor say, you can play with this and, f- and experiment and figure out what works. Um, Dallas Willard, maybe I think 13 years ago, I heard an interview where he was talking to like 2,000 pastors about spiritual disciplines, and he encouraged them to think of it less as black and white binary rules and to approach it as an experiment. Uh, you should experiment with different translations of the Bible, different ways of praying, you, and you should discover kind of what works for you. So I want to give you permission to um, take what we're talking about here and go and experiment with it, play with it. The second is um, I think it would be helpful if you knew how God wired you. You have to know yourself uh, in, in some ways before you can know God. Um, the first thing would be, are you an introvert or extrovert? Just out of the gates, you got to know that. For so long, I'm the youngest of five, um, and I grew up introverted. And for most, and not until maybe six years ago, I thought I was an introvert. Some of you who know me are like, are you serious? I just thought I was, I was told I was an introvert. I thought I was an introvert. I was raised introverted. I was raised really shy, insecure, had self-esteem issues, had low self-esteem. And so I was very introverted. But I was an introvert. And it actually took a guy who was not a believer one day, called me out on it. He's like, Drew, you're not an introvert. You're an extrovert. And he had to explain this to me. And I was resting like I was an introvert. I was told introverts should like love books and sit on a couch with tea and coffee all day and just journal and that spiritual maturity for an introvert. And I, it felt like hell to me. But I was like, I'm an introvert. I need to do this. And um, uh, some people were discipling me and they helped me realize I'm actually more of an extrovert. Um, the second thing would, uh, this has really help, been helpful to me, is, is um, have you discovered your Enneagram number? Some people love the Enneagram, some people hate it. Um, I have actually learned more about myself in the last two years through the ancient Holy Enneagram than ever before. And so it might be helpful if you knew your Enneagram number and particularly what's called your triad. There's nine numbers. There's three, three, and three, three triads. There's the heart triad, the head triad, and the gut triad. I'm in the gut triad. So how people who operate from their gut rest is very different than people who operate out of their head. So it'd be helpful to know that. Um, and this was great. I went to, um, I was really burnt out in ministry a long time ago, and I had to go to a counselor. I actually went to a counselor with like, hey, I'm just really depressed, and um, can you give me some medicine so I can feel normal? And uh, this wise um, kind of spirit-filled Baptist, his name is Rick, he recognized what my issue was and that medicine wasn't, my, wasn't what I needed, and he began to talk to me about my Sabbath. He began to talk to me about why I was burning out and how I was abusing my life and my body. And uh, he, he told me this great quote. I never heard it before, but he said, Drew, the person who works with their mind must rest with their hands. And the person who works with their hands must rest with their mind. And he's like, what do you work with? And I was like, I work with my head most of the time. He's like, you need a hobby that involves your hands. And encouraged me to get into woodworking or painting or something where I was actually doing something that I loved, that brought me life, but with my hands to give my mind. And that's why I do woodworking. 
is to me, it's like being in the shop is therapy for me. Like my shop is my private chapel where I go to be with the Lord and like two by fours don't gossip about you. They don't talk bad about you. It's great. And if they don't, you just throw them in a planer, you know? <laughs> Can't do that with you, but <laughs> a two by four I could, you know? So, but I've learned, I've, I've learned so much how to rest just by going, I work with my mind, I need to rest with my hands. I've got a friend who's in construction, he works with his hands, and for him, resting is like sitting in a, in a leather chair reading lots of books. And to me, I'm like, that's my job. That's not rest for me, you know? And so I rest by doing what he does for a living. He rests by doing what I do. So, so you might need to figure out, man, if, if, you, if your job is like mentally exhausting, you might need like a hobby or some way to find rest right with your hands. And vice versa, if you're an electrician, you might need to do the opposite. And if you're both, sometimes you're like in a, in a, you just have to figure that out, okay? You're smart. Okay, the fourth, <laughs> I think you are, the fourth thing I'd like to offer to you is do you know your sacred pathway? I read this book in the summer on my mini sabbatical called uh, Sacred Pathway by Gary Thomas. Gary Thomas has written several books like Sacred, I think Marriage and things like that. And um, unbelievable book. If you have trouble uh, um, regularly experiencing God's presence, I'd highly recommend The Sacred Pathway by, God, by Gary Thomas. He basically outlines that uh, he's observed through the scripture and through history and through experience and his counseling that there are about nine different paths um, in which we walk and experience God's presence. And churches are, tend to, um, are organized around just a few of them. And so some people can come to a church service and they can feel God's presence and sitting right next to them can be someone going, I don't get it, right? Well, it's not because there's something wrong with that person necessarily. It might be just we're not speaking in a path that's them. So um, I want to encourage you to dive into that. We've got a resource to give you, but I'm just going to fire hose what the nine paths are. The first one is the naturalist. The naturalist path is someone who loves God outdoors, who finds God through nature, this is me. You put me in front of a mountain, I hear God like nothing else. You put me in a cathedral, nothing. You put me in front of a mountain, it's like the transfiguration. I, if I need to meet with God, I just go walk on the river. And I just, I meet God outdoors. I don't know what it is. That's just, you know, it's the way it is. My desktop is a picture of a mountain that I took in Colorado, just to give you a hint of like, <laughs> right, on my computer. The second one is sensates. Sensates experience God through the senses. Um, Handel, the, the composer Handel is a great um, example of this. He spoke of transcendental keys, and he associated music that had the key signature of five, six, seven, or eight sharps as heavenly music. If you know music, then that may, will make sense to you. But uh, Handel is one of those guys who experienced God through um, certain signatures of music. Smell, touch, taste, these are uh, important for sensei. Sight, uh, Henry Nouwen is probably a well-known contemporary of this. If you know uh, Henry's story, he had spent a lot of years in seminary, but it wasn't until he stood in front of Rembrandt's um, The Prodigal Son and just for hours just stood in front of that painting and was undone by the hands that Rembrandt had painted. That's an example of someone meeting God through sight. Uh, third one is traditionalist. Traditionalists love God through ritual and symbol. Traditionalists find God's presence in liturgies, in 
um, historic worship, in tradition, in sacrifice, rituals, altars, and they meet God there. Um, I don't meet God there, which is awkward because I'm a priest, but um, a lot of people do. Uh, fourth is ascetics. They love God in solitude and simplicity. So where the sensates meet God through um, lots of external senses, um, those who are ascetic um, find that distracting. And they need solitary, uh, solitude, austerity, strictness. Um, these are the desert fathers who fled to the desert to meet with God. Um, John the Baptist would be a scriptural example of someone who meets God detached from everything. Uh, the fifth one is activists, people who love God through confrontation. Um, activists tend to feel closest to God when they're bringing about social change. Biblical examples of this is Moses and Elijah. Moses stands before Pharaoh and says, I saw this burning bush, and he said, they'll let his people go, right? That is someone who is an activist and meeting God on that activist pathway. Uh, sixth one is caregivers who love God by loving others. Uh, Mordecai in the book of Esther would be an example of this. Jesus is the best example of this. The Good Samaritan would be an example of someone who is worshiping God by really loving and caring for others in ways that most people wouldn't. The seventh is enthusiasts. They are people who love God with mystery and celebration. Um, enthusiast worshipers tend to have high expectations in their faith and in their prayers. They're, they're often prophetic and have dreams. They're very creative and exuberant. If you know the ministries such as Bethel or the Upper Room, these are really like hotbeds for people who worship God in this enthusiastic way. The eighth pathway is the contemplative, someone who loves God through adoration. King David would be an example of this. Um, contemplatives usually have a very, very intimate relationship with the Lord. They don't really see themselves as the Lord's servant. They see themselves as the Lord's friend. And the last one is the, the intellectual path, people who love God with their mind. Solomon and St. Paul would be examples of people who really love God with their mind. Um, I'm thinking of people like Tim Keller would probably fall in this category. Um, if you love church history, biblical studies, systematic theology, if you have a Wayne Grudem book on your nightstand, this is probably the way that you in encounter the Lord. And so um, I had never really uh, heard of that or gave... Uh, thought to that, so I read, I read that book this summer and realized I'm a hybrid of these. You're probably not a pure one. And uh, I'm a naturalist intellectual, so when I am in nature listening to a great sermon or listening to worship music or thinking about the Lord while walking is when I just kind of consistently experience God's presence. And so it'd be helpful for you on your Sabbath if you knew your pathway. Okay, so uh, now let's get to the four pillars of Holy Sabbath. Again, I don't think that, that we should have laws on the Sabbath. Um, I think it would be helpful to have maybe some rules. For example, my wife and I have a holy marriage. We have rules in our marriage. Um, like I don't give women uh, rides in the car by myself. I don't, I'm not up late at night talking to them. I, I don't engage in, with, with other women in social media, uh, you know, we have filters on all my devices, and every week she sees a report of everything that I've searched and looked at. Like, we just have rules to keep our marriage holy. I think for a Sabbath, you could approach it that way and go, we need to have some predetermined, this is appropriate, this is inappropriate, right? And uh, some people get like really like, oh, you're being a Pharisee. Ah, it, I just think it's wisdom, okay? So um, 
here are at least four pillars, and I'm taking these from Pete Scazzaro. The first one is you stop work. It's kind of a no-brainer, but the word Sabbath literally means to stop, to cease. So I think at a minimum, the activities that you do on Sabbath need to be very different than the activities you do on the other six days of the week. Um, This is a day where you should do no paid or unpaid work. Sometimes we abuse our life and we say yes to too many things and we feel like the Sabbath is just a catch-up day. And if that happens regularly, I think you'd be wise to step back and go, am I abusing the 24 hours God's given me every day? Am I not embracing the limits God has given me? If you regularly need to use your Sabbath to catch up, you're probably living uh, in a way that's overextended from God's design for you. And so um, just you got to cease for 24 hours. It doesn't matter what day it is necessarily. I just think it needs to be rhythmic and it needs to be 24 hours. The second thing is you enjoy rest. Uh, enjoying rest is, is another pillar of the Sabbath. It should be slower. Um, I am a big proponent of don't have technology or very little technology. So on Sabbath, I take my watch off and my, my, my smartphone lives somewhere else, not near me. And occasionally I'll go to it and make sure there's not an emergency. And you know what? Like 99.9% of the time, there's no emergency. I didn't need to have my phone on me, you know? And if it really was bad, someone would come knock on my door and say, hey, Drew, the world's falling apart, you know? And it's never happened in like all these years. It's never happened. So um, that's a rule for me is just no technology, no email, um, no screens. It's just a day where um, that's not a distraction to me. Uh, a day, enjoy rest, naps. How about this? Sabbath is a day where at like one o'clock you change into your pajamas and you take your contacts out and you turn the air conditioner down a few degrees and you put a sleepy mask on and you go under your favorite blanket. That sounds like Sabbath to me. And, I, and I'm an extrovert. Uh, this is a, a rule um, that I recently added and I did it on accident is now I try to, this is personal, okay? So I'm describing something, but you, just to give you an example of, of how you would define what's restful to you and what's not, is um, a Sabbath a day where I don't make appointments. So um, a couple of months ago, I accidentally made an appointment on my Sabbath to go to the doctor. And I didn't think anything about it. And it was in the afternoon. And so the morning I spent slow and I was praying and, and then I, I had this time with the Lord. And after I do that, I'll just do whatever. I, and that day I wanted to go in the workshop and just, you know, I don't even know what I was working on, but it was a little bitty project and just to do that. And I am like filled with sawdust and having a wonderful time. And then Shari comes in and says, Drew, you're going to be late. You've got an appointment in like 10 minutes and it takes 15 minutes to get there. So she takes the leaf blower and like, you know, gets all the sawdust off of me. And I'm like running and I hadn't like showered, I hadn't brushed my teeth and I broke my Sabbath rule on that. And, and so like suddenly I'm in the car going to this doctor's appointment already late and I hate being late. And then I get behind every idiot driver in San Antonio. And then I hit every red light and I show up 30 minutes late to this appointment. And I, I know the doctor it was you, <laughs> and, uh, and I'm just inside. I am like, <gasps> and I realized, oh my goodness, like I didn't need to do it on, the, on my Sabbath. I could have done it on other days. And I didn't realize kind of how much work you put into keeping an appointment in that day. I realized it. I don't think I was sinning, 
But I was like, oh, like, I was having this great Sabbath, and then I felt anxiety and stress, and I have to be somewhere. And, and so I just, my rule now is like, eh, if, I, if I can avoid it, just as a rule, I don't keep appointments on Mondays. You know? So you'll figure out what works for you, but that's an example. I know this is a safe place to confess. The third one is practice uh, delight. This is where when people go, the Sabbath is boring. They don't know number three. Uh, uh, the Sabbath is a day to feast. The Sabbath is a day for pleasure. The Sabbath should be a preview of paradise and a preview of heaven. The Sabbath should literally be 24 hours where you experience a little more of heaven on earth. And so you should experience beauty in some way. One way that I'll experience beauty is I'll just go to Hotel Emma and just walk around. And I'm like, oh, that was that bathroom is, right? If you, you know what I'm talking about? Have you been in the bathrooms of Hotel Emma? An unnecessary expense, right? Oh, my goodness. It's like the flooring is like $30 a square foot. And you're like, for a bathroom? But, you know, that's an example. of Find something to, that's beautiful. Uh, maybe if you like art, go to a museum. You know, if you're really like, a, you know, like that may be um, something for you. Uh, feasting. Uh, this is my favorite. Is I know we got a ton of coffee snobs, okay? So I hope you get the spirit of this. Um, if you're like, I don't know how to make the seventh day different than the other six, here's what you do. If you're a coffee snob, here's what you do. You buy the best coffee, and you only drink that coffee on Sabbath. So maybe, go with me here, maybe the other six days you do the Keurig, or God forbid Folgers, <laughs> the F word. But on the seventh day, you do Chemex, and you do a steak coffee or something. Right. You get the point, right? And just do it once, and you're like, okay, I can do, the, I can do Chemex every set. But you get the point. If you, if you um, drink a glass of wine every night or whatever, maybe just for once you do like box wine on the six days, and on the seventh day you do it. Right? You get the point. It's just make the seventh a little bit more holy, a little bit more expensive, a little bit more luxurious. Um, right? You get the point. It's a play day. Whatever you think would be fun, do that and do a lot of it. For me, I love being in the shop. That's fun for me. For some, that's work. For some, you hire people to do that stuff because you don't like doing it. I love uh, having you know, a tape measure and a pencil and laying out. I love that. That brings actually restoration to me. And so you got to figure out what do you like to do. Maybe it's golfing or maybe it's whatever. I don't know what it is. But you just do that and do a lot of it. Budget, invest in it. The fourth thing is contemplate God. Um, Listen, you can do those other three things, but if you do not incorporate the worship of God, the, the, the reflecting of what he's doing in your life, then you run the risk of what Peterson says where you're bastardizing the Sabbath, right? So you have to figure out some spiritual ways. This is where the pathway, the sacred pathways would be really help, uh, helpful. And so the Sabbath day is when I reflect more than I do usually, where I think and pray and journal more than I do usually. There are actually even books. This is dumb, but I'll even, when, I'm, when I feel like I'm missing it, um, this is my favorite book on, uh, on Sabbath. It's by a guy by the name of Dan Allender, just called Sabbath. What a creative title. I think it's like nine bucks on Amazon, and it's the best book on Sabbath I've ever read. He's a therapist, and he wrote this to rescue Sabbath from the religious people. And I read this years ago and just discovered the delight that Sabbath is. I thought it was boring, a day for a boring church service. And this book really rescued it for me. And so there's times where on the Sabbath, I'll just read a chapter of this to remind me of the delight. There's a, a book by Pete Scazzaro that I love, uh, Emotionally Healthy Spirituality. He's got a, a chapter, chapter eight on Sabbath. I've got it bookmarked. A lot of it's bookmarked right here. 
And um, whenever I feel like I'm getting off, I need to recalibrate. I'll go back to this book and read chapter 8, and I'll do that on the Sabbath. Um, so I want to offer those resources to you. Um, you know, maybe, maybe utmost for his highest would be good, or learning about the daily examine or some Benedictine practices. Uh, Jake told me about an app called the First 15. I've never seen it, but apparently it's an Anglican app that helps in this First 15. You can Google it and find it. Um, but anyways, there's lots of resources out there to help you. The Daily Audio Bible is a great one as well. Um, but there's lots of resources to help you do this fourth step. Okay, So the gospel in all of this is what we're talking about is not earning more of God's love. Not um, doing more so that God would love us more. What we're talking about is just John 15. Jesus says, apart from me, you can do nothing. And it's true. Apart from him, I can do nothing. Apart from him, you can do nothing. So the Sabbath is this like seventh regular day where the branch restores its connection to the vine, to say the very least. We're the branch, he's the vine. And the seventh day, the Sabbath is when I come away from work, I come away from pressures, I come away from expectations, I come away from distractions, and I say, Lord, how might you reconnect? I've been, I've been working for six days, I'm pretty sure I may have severed a little bit of the branch. Can you restore the branch to the vine today? Can you show me where I'm working apart from you and where I need to repent? And that's, that's what we're talking about. It's not a, a, a religious legalistic thing, it's just a day where we come away and the, the connection between us and the true vine gets restored and reinforced, and it's great. So I want to offer you what many of you have probably already looked at, is this uh, seven-week Sabbath challenge. Did you know that there are only seven weeks left in 2019? We only have five more Sundays worshiping here. It's crazy. There's 11 days, I think, till Thanksgiving. So I want to offer this, the primer. It, there's some links. If you don't know your Myers-Briggs, which could help you with your introvert, extrovert, and your Enneagram, um, your work style, there's a whole thing, many pages on the sacred pathways. You don't even need to read the book. You can read the book, but you can literally uh, take this little quiz, and it will tell you which one of these that you probably are. And then um, uh, there's kind of my notes that I would uh, give to you right here, the four, uh, four pillars, and maybe some questions to help you define um, how you can do this. So I want to offer, encourage you to take this, and um, here, I'm going to tell you to take it, because here's the deal. Thanksgiving's 11 days away, which means Black Friday is 12 days away, which means our culture has already lost their mind on how we're going to end the year, Right? It's like stressmas, not Christmas. So I would, I, would, I would encourage you to take some time with you and the Lord and to say, in these next seven weeks, what seven days am I going to set aside to be holy unto the Lord where I reject the narrative of this culture, which is you find rest by the new things you buy at the end of the year? I'm going to reject the narrative of this culture that I need to spend all of December going from party to party to party to party to party to party. I'm going to reject the narrative of this culture, which will cause me, without even thinking, to overspend and find myself in debt in January, which is so stupid. 
And I'd encourage you to take the next seven Sabbaths and use them as resistance against the ways of this world and the ways of our culture and the appetites of your flesh. I don't think most of us could do that well without some intentional strategic planning right now, which is what that worksheet is meant to be for you. And then here's what I'm going to do. In 2020, I'm going to come back and go, hey, we've got eight weeks until Lent. Let's retweak our Sabbath. And how are we going to Sabbath for the next eight weeks? And then Lent's going to come and I'm going to say, hey, church, we got six weeks of Lent. How are we going to tweak our Sabbath so we can become more aware of our need in God's promise? And then Easter's going to, you get the rhythm here. Okay, so I want to encourage you. If you've never done this, just do it for seven weeks and try it. And here's the deal. If you are like addicted to busyness and consumerism and running from God and living beyond your limits, it's going to be stinking hard. You will need to be detoxed. And if you approach this and it's hard, all I want to say is remember this. That's your soul saying, I need to be detoxed. And anything worth doing is worth doing badly, G.K. Chesterton said. So I want to encourage you to live into it. If you need help, we're here. We'd love to help you. We'd love to help um, do that. And then this, uh, this third one. This is fun for me. Find your Gethsemane. Gethsemane was a place where Jesus regularly retreated to. It was a garden. It was a place of beauty. It was a place of peace on the outside of the city. And when we read the account on the night he was betrayed, we find that he went to Gethsemane often to pray. So, do you have a Gethsemane? I have a Gethsemane. I'm not going to tell you what it is because I don't want you to show up with torches someday. Just kidding. It's Hotel Emma. You could have guessed it. <laughs> that fire right outside in the lobby is my, my place where I go to be with God sometimes. So, um, let's pray. Heavenly Father, we just uh, thank you for the season that you have all of us in, that you have our church in. And that your message to us is we are not machines, we are not slaves, we are not human doings, we are human beings. And God, we just don't know how to rest sometimes. And Lord, even now, I feel the need to recalibrate how I approach it. And so we pray, Jesus, our true Sabbath, the Lord of the Sabbath, that you would keep us from religion, from being Pharisees, from being legalistic, but we pray you would make us wise. Help us to look at the ancient path, to see your invitation to come where there is green pasture, to come where there are still waters, to come to the places that you mean to restore our souls. We ask for your, your leading and guidance, Holy Spirit, Help us to be led by you. Help us to feel safe to experiment and to play with it and to tweak it and to calibrate it. More than anything, Lord, we desire that you would remove all the kinks in the hose so that we could experience the overflowing stream of living water. Lord, we thank you for being present in this place for inhabiting the praises of your people, for being gracious to lift us into your presence and lift us into your throne. And in response, Lord, we as a people 
we lift our hearts to you. We lift thanksgiving and praise to you. Amen.